Kelly wants to know, are sugar addictions real? They are real. In fact, you can even show the brain effects of sugar on the first day of life. The taste of sugar on the tongue triggers the release of opiates in the brain. Opiate triggering in turn triggers the release of dopamine, which is the pleasure chemical. It doesn't have the strength of recreational drugs, but it is strong enough to keep you hooked. And welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for giving the show a listen, or a view, or a download, wherever it is in the world that you are. We appreciate the fact that you are here. And today, we are doing part five of our Diet Myth series, getting to the bottom of what is fact and what is fiction. You may have seen so many of these things floating around Twitter or Facebook. Well, today we are giving the blue check mark to the truth and helping us clear up that confusion are doctors Neil Barnard and Jim Loomis. And we have so many great questions once again this week. Already at the top of the show, right out of the gate, you learn that sugar can in fact be addictive opioid-like properties, right? But Dr. Barnard did not stop there with his answer. We're also going to learn how you can overcome those addictions and make sugar addiction a thing of the past. Plus, we are going to put butter in a head-to-head battle with milk. Somebody wrote in wanting to know, is one worse than the other? Or can you even compare the two? Well, we'll be getting some advice there. And is it true, somebody wanted to know, that certain foods can cause the body to create its own bad cholesterol? That was a great question from Wayne. We're going to get an answer to that. And then Lynn had a really cool question as well. She checked in wanting to know if food can lose its nutritional value when it is dehydrated. And for those of you who jam on Java, Dr. Barnard is going to pour us a venti-sized cup of knowledge when it comes to coffee. Plus, there's some great questions in there for vegan athletes as well. Going to bust some myths. So really what we have here is a solid 30-minute Q&A where we are going to cover a lot of ground. So let's get right to it right now. Clear up that confusion. Separate fact from fiction with Drs. Barnard and Loomis. Dr. Loomis, we are actually going to start off with you today because of your athletic background. We have a question here from Olfa. She wants to know, do you recommend vegan protein powder? Is it safe? So um, that's a, a question we get all the time out to, you know, do you need to supplement protein powder and are vegan protein powder safe? You know, in general, um, really, plants have protein. And and again, there's a lot of misconceptions. It, it is true that, that athletes do need a little bit more protein than, than the more active you are, the more protein you need. An endurance athlete, the RDA for protein is about the recommended daily allowance. That's what RDA is. It's, it's about 0.8, 0.9 grams per kilogram of ideal body weight. An endurance athlete might need 1.2 to 1.5. A strength training athlete might need closer to two. Um, the thing is, though, if you're training for a marathon, um, you know, you're not eating 2,000 calories, you're eating 4,000 calories. And if you, 
you know, the natural macronutrient ratios of a plant-based diet are about 15% plant-based protein. And if you do the math, so say you're, you know, kind of reasonably active and you're eating a couple thousand calories a day and you're of average size, that, that actually turns out to be 15% protein actually turns out to be right in that wheelhouse of 0.8, 0.9 per, grams per kilogram. So if I'm training for a marathon and I'm running, you know, and, and I'm burnt, eating 4,000 calories a day, um, well, guess what? My protein intake has doubled. So now I'm in that 1.6 range, exactly where I need to be as a, as, a, as, a, as a strength training athlete. So you just don't need to take extra protein um, um, in any form. Um, and the problem with, now, some people, you might say, well, I'm in a hurry, I have a busy lifestyle, and so I don't really have time to eat things. So how about if I just, um, uh, you know, make a protein shake in the morning? There's nothing wrong with that. And in general, protein powders are safe. You do have to be careful, you know, with added sugars and, 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 and such as that. But the thing is, when we, you know, when you're using protein powder instead of beans or lentils as your protein source, you're actually removing um, some of the most important nutrients that come with food. And that is the fiber and the phytonutrients and antioxidants and on. So, you know, if you're in a pinch and you, and, you know, and you want to use a, make a smoothie or a shake in the morning as a protein, as a meal replacement, not as a supplement, I think it's okay to use um, a little protein powder now and again. But in general, you should really try, we, we should really try to focus on getting our protein from food. All right. Dr. Barnard, coming over to you. This one, very appropriate. Kelly wants to know, are sugar addictions real? And if so, how can I fight them? Uh, they are real. Um, in fact, you can even show the brain effects of sugar on the first day of life. Uh, believe it or not, researchers uh, have taken newborn babies and they've dribbled a little sugar water into their mouths uh, right in the hospital just on the first day of, of life. Um, because when nurses are going to do a little heel stick and get a, a drop of blood to do blood tests, babies always cry. They don't like the pain. And researchers discovered that you can dribble a little sugar into the mouth of the baby. They cry less. Um, and it turns out that what's going on both in the babies and in adults using sugar or having sugary sodas is that the, the taste of sugar on the tongue triggers the release of opiates in the brain, which are natural mild painkillers. Um, but in addition, the uh, opiate triggering in turn triggers the release of dopamine, which is the pleasure chemical. So it's, it's relatively subtle. It's not, it doesn't have the strength of recreational drugs, but it is strong enough to keep you hooked. So what do you do about it? Um, I guess the first thing to say is sugar comes in different forms. And I think the ones that are the worst or the most dangerous are the ones where there's a sugar fat mixture like a pie or a cake or a donut because the sugar lures you in and then the fat is where the calories are particularly concentrated and that's what's going to raise your cholesterol. Um, whereas uh, foods that have just some sugar without all that glop in them are going to be somewhat better. Um, but if you really are hooked on it, you want you decide if it's an issue. If it is an issue, you might just set it aside rather than try to, to do it in moderation because moderation is often a way to just get back into the same problem you have. Make sure that you're taking care of yourself in other ways. Um, get a good night's rest. Get some exercise because if you are sleep deprived, you are going to do anything the next day just to get through the day and your sugar addiction is going to scream out really loud. So those are a few ideas. 
let's stick with you, Dr. Brown. Our next question, a lot of people love sugar. A lot of people love coffee. We have a question from Shelly. Wants to know, what about caffeine? Does Dr. Barnard drink a lot of coffee? And is it safe to drink more than one cup per day? Is that healthy? Okay, fascinating question. Um, <laughs> first, first of all, I have to say I don't drink coffee um, at all. Uh, it just I just never acquired a taste for it. But, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's bad for you. Um, the research is a little bit mixed. Um, when you look at Alzheimer's disease, coffee probably reduces the risk. To get there, you have to have a fairly heroic amount, like five cups of coffee per day. Um, but the, the association has seemed to hold up. Uh, on the other hand, there are negatives to caffeine. Uh, caffeine can aggravate uh, cardiac arrhythmias a little bit. That's not the biggest factor there. Uh, it can make sleep rocky and it will change your personality. Um, you might think it's great to be as talkative as you are at 8.30 in the morning and your, your uh, carpool may not agree with you. Um, so those are some of the main issues with coffee. I, I think overall, caffeine, caffeinated beverages are not the worst issue, but um, you don't need them. Dr. Loomis, coming back to you, we talked a little bit about supplementing with protein, uh, but here's another question specifically for athletes. This one is from Thomas. Wants to know, do you recommend endurance runners get extra vitamins or minerals? Yeah, so that's another great question. Um, you know, there's there's really no evidence that that any one specific vitamin or supplement um, enhances athletic performance or recovery. Now, there are some specific foods, things like beets, uh, anything that activates um, nitric oxide can increase endurance because that increases blood flow. So that's things like beets and arugula and kale. Um, there's some foods that have been shown that might help with recovery. Um, uh, tart cherry juice, for example. Um, now, that being said, when I um, was training um, last year for uh, Ironman triathlon, um, I'd suffered an injury. Um, uh, I tripped and fell and banged my knee and had a pretty significant bursitis. And I did use some turmeric, a turmeric uh, ginger black pepper supplement, which, which uh, has been shown to be anti-inflammatory. And there is some pretty good research around even people with like degenerative arthritis, uh, chronic knee pain, chronic hip pain, that it may be as effective as, as um, the non-steroidal anti-inflammatories like ibuprofen um, um, without all the side effects. Um, the other thing that I did take on occasion was an algae-based or a vegan omega-3 fatty acids. Omega th omega-3s uh, in our bodies are, are broken down to compounds that are precursors for anti-inflammatory um, uh, chemicals, if you will, leukotrienes and prostaglandins, as opposed to omega-6s, which are inflammatory. So you really want to keep you that ratio of omega-6, omega-3 ratio, uh, 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 fatty acids in your diet pretty low. Um, now you can do you can do that by consuming foods like flaxseed, hemp seed, you know, walnuts, um, things like that. Um, but um, I did take a little bit of omega three. Again, there's not a lot of really solid research around the use of these supplements and and performance and recovery. Um, subjectively, I think I uh, did feel better, um, especially um, um, after my my little injury. Um, but, you know, in general, again, eating a well-balanced whole food plant-based diet should give you all the vitamins and nutrients and antioxidants and anti-inflammatory compounds uh, you need to perform optimally. All right, Dr. Barnard, bouncing back to you. This one may be uh, maybe a tale of two evils. I really don't know how to 
classify this one. Somebody wants to know, how bad is butter and is it worse than milk? I don't drink milk and I rarely eat cheese, but I do eat butter. So they're looking for a little bit of guidance. I would skip the butter. Uh, to make butter, obviously you take milk, which has a, a mixture of fat and some sugar in it, a lot of sugar, lactose sugar in the, the, the milk. And it has some protein and some other things in it. And to turn it into butter, you basically get rid of everything except for the fat. And the quality of the fat is what we're worried about. It's terrible. It's really high in saturated fat. And when you feed it to volunteers in carefully controlled research studies, you know what happens to their cholesterol levels? You guessed it. They they go straight up. Um, So butter is... um, very tasty. But, you know, if you get a good bread or you have uh, good vegetables and other, other things that you're using the butter on and you just decide to detox yourself from the butter, you'll find that after a while, not only do you not want it, but you specifically want to avoid it. So I would get away from the butter. All right, Dr. Loomis, we're going to kind of piggyback on this one a little bit. I'm going to stick with the cholesterol note. Very interesting question, I think, from Wayne. He writes in, I've always known that animal products contain cholesterol and bad fats, but I've recently heard that certain food and drink can cause us to actually create our own bad cholesterol. Is this true? And if so, what are these foods and drinks? Well, I, you know, I, the cholesterol is a natural product that our bodies need to function. We need it. It, it plays a role in our, uh, in, in maintaining healthy cell walls in our body. And, and we need to have some cholesterol and, and the body, um, the body can in fact uh, make plenty of its own cholesterol without the addition of dietary cholesterols. Now there, you know, uh, in general um, there is an association between elevated levels of LDL cholesterol, which is the bad cholesterol. And you really want to keep that in minimum, in a minimum, <clears throat> excuse me. In fact, it's felt the optimum um, level of LDL ratio for optimum uh, to, to optimally reduce your risk of coronary artery disease is, is a level in the seventies, um, you know, less, 75 or less. And we do know that the many foods, including some um, um, plant-based foods can raise LDL uh, mainly with, um, with sat- because of saturated fat. And, and, and in particular, it's, it's really, um, um, you have to be very careful with some of the um, edible oils. And, and I think that's true in general, you know, things like corn oil, um, you know, and especially the, satur- the oils that have a lot of saturated fat, like coconut oil, for example. So, so in general, again, those to me, I would not consider edible oils as part of a, a true whole, you know, they're vegan, but they're, they're, I wouldn't consider that part of a true whole food plant-based diet, which is, uh, it's, it's vegan in the sense there's no animal products, but it also tries to really minimize um, the, the amount of processed food in your diet. And, and so, you know, again, in general, sticking to a whole food plant-based diet and really being careful with um, the consumption of edible oils, um, in, 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 in your diet, in particular, the ones that are higher in saturated fat, like coconut oil, but edible oils in general, um, can, um, um, can cause, can, can raise LDL cholesterol. Dr. Barnard, did you want to add to this? Um, you know, so many people, um, learn that our bodies do need some cholesterol, just as Dr. Loomis was saying, and they mistakenly think that we need to eat some cholesterol. So I need an egg to get its cholesterol or I need a steak for its cholesterol. But as Dr. Loomis was saying, the body makes the cholesterol that it needs. 
So you don't need to add any at all. And if you do add cholesterol through an egg or other animal products, your blood cholesterol tends to rise and, and you don't want that. So, so cholesterol plays important roles in the body, but your body makes the cholesterol that you need and you don't need to add any. All right, let's jump from cholesterol to calcium. Sticking with you, Dr. Barnard, question from Elaine. What would you say to people who say you need to drink milk in order to get calcium? Well, it's important to remember that even though you do need calcium for bones and lots of other things, uh, I guess a couple of things should be said. The first is you don't need as much as you might have heard. You'll hear people say you need 1,000 milligrams a day or 1,200 milligrams a day. When you look through the research on it, it's pretty hard to make a case for getting more than about 600 milligrams a day. The, the reason I say that is when you are at that level, you just don't see uh, a higher uh, incidence of fractures uh, for people who are, who are um, a higher or lower incidence of fractures, depending on, on variations above that level. So in other words, if you're having six or seven or 800 milligrams a day to get to 1500 is not going to make your bones stronger. Um, but the other thing about it is where does calcium come from? Cows don't actually make it. The calcium that is in milk came into the cow through the cow's diet. The cow is eating grass and the grass roots pull the calcium out of the soil and it ends up in the, in the green vegetable that the cow eats grass. Hopefully you're not eating grass, but if you're eating broccoli or kale or collards, you're getting that green vegetable and that gives you calcium in its natural uh, source. So green vegetables are the natural source of it. And you're frankly better off getting them that way because all the things that go along with it in the green vegetable are far better than the things that come along with calcium in milk, like cholesterol and hormones and, and fat and that kind of thing. There you go. As a reminder, if you have a question for either Dr. Barnard or Dr. Loomis, you can tweet that to us using the hashtag exam room live. Dr. Loomis, this question comes to us from Linda. She says, I've been suffering with psoriasis and now psoriatic joint pain. Do you have any suggestions for my diet? Yes. Yeah, so um, that's a great question. And um, so, you know, so psoriasis is felt to be an autoimmune disease. We don't really know what triggers it. There's some evidence it might be a kind of a hyper immune response to certain viral infections. And it, it causes kind of a plaque-like rash, which can be um, very debilitating, actually. Uh, people with extensive psoriasis, you know, they're embarrassed to go outside because they have these, you know, their skin doesn't look very pretty. And in advanced cases, it can actually cause um, um, a form of arthritis. It actually causes inflammation of the joints. Um, there is some evidence that many autoimmune diseases will, in fact, get better from um, uh, by adapting uh, an anti-inflammatory whole food plant-based diet. And, and I think there's two factors at work here. And I have, in fact, seen many patients in our practice at, at Barnard Medical Center who have actually um, even reversed and or put their psoriasis into remission uh, with a strict whole food plant-based diet, particularly getting rid of the dairy products. That seems to be one of the triggers. And just to, the way I kind of think about this when I talk about my patients is think about your body as a house. And each room in the house is an organ system. So we have a brain room, we have a, we have a skin room, we have a respiratory room, we have a joint room, um, we have a cardiovascular room. Um, and, and each, when we eat uh, kind of a standard Western diet, which is highly inflammatory. We fill our house up with angry people. And you can imagine if a stranger 
stranger wandered into the house or into a particular room, it wouldn't be a good outcome. So, for example, you know, and depending on the nature of the stranger, what room dictates the clinical state. So they come in the thyroid room, you've got thyroiditis, Hashimoto's. They come in the skin room, you've got eczema or psoriasis. They come in the respiratory room, you've got asthma or allergies. They come in the joint room, you've got rheumatoid arthritis or, 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 um, or um, osteoarthritis. So where are these strangers coming from? Well, it turns out they're probably coming in from our gut. That, and, 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 and it's fundamentally related to a disrupted gut microbiome. Um, and, and we do a lot of things to disrupt our gut microbiome. You know, babies are born with a sterile gut. Then we have a vaginal delivery. Then we breastfeed. And the rest of our lives, we got our food out of the dirt. We got, we played in the dirt. We got our water that had bacteria in it. You know, we've completely disrupted that whole system. You know, we C-section babies. We don't breastfeed anymore. We put so much, you know, pollution. We put so many pesticides and herbicides on our food. We have to scrub the dirt off. We pollute the water. So we have to, we have to chlorinate it. We pass out antibiotics like their candy. So, and then we eat a high fat, highly processed food, which further disrupts our gut bacteria. And the gut bacteria play a very important role in, in maintaining gut health and, and maintaining um, gut, per, decreasing gut permeability so the gut doesn't leak. And when we get a, um, when we get, when we eat a, live a fairly unhealthy lifestyle and, and populate our gut with unhealthy bacteria, the gut can leak these protein antigens. You know, remember, we swallow a lot of good stuff, you know, nutri nutrients, but we also swallow a lot of bad stuff. I mean, bacteria, viruses, there's a lot of protein antigens that we really aren't designed to absorb into our bodies at high levels like gluten and, and, and milk proteins. And so when we move transition to a whole food plant based diet, two things happen. The first thing that happens is it's it's highly anti-inflammatory inflammatory. So you kick all the angry people out of the house. And then and then second of all, you um, um, and, and this may take a little bit longer, but in usually in, you know, a few weeks to a few months, you will actually reset your gut microbiome. So now you've shut the front door to these strangers who are wandering in the house and creating all this havoc. I mean, that, that's a fairly kind of simplistic way. But 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 I think there's something to that. And, and although there's not a ton of research directly looking at psoriasis, for example, there are a, there's a lot of research looking, in, in fact, some which has been done at PCRM, uh, looking at other um, 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 uh, autoimmune diseases, for example, rheumatoid arthritis. So certainly um, it's not going to hurt anything. And again, in my experience, um, um, people have had tremendous, really life-changing improvements in their psoriasis after they've adapted a whole food plant-based diet, in particular, given up dairy. That, that's probably the one thing that I would recommend for sure. Strangers in the house. That is a nice analogy. That's a, you're so good with that. Uh, Dr. Barnard, here's a one for you. Maybe you have an analogy for iodine. This question comes to us from Daryl. He writes that my doctor says I am low thyroid, but I've been using iodized salt. So I don't think I'm low in iodine. So what could be causing this? Oh, great question. Um, many, many people are low in, in, in they're, they're low thyroid there hypothyroid. And worldwide, the reason that you gave is the reason that people are low in iodine. However, um, in the United States, the biggest reason is actually not a lack of iodine. It's antibodies. Antibodies form in your body. Uh, their normal job is to attack viruses or bacteria, but they can also attack the thyroid. And when they reduce the thyroid's ability to produce thyroid hormone, that is a condition called Hashimoto's thyroiditis. It's, it's the big reason for low thyroid in the United States. So researchers at uh, the Adventist Health Study started looking at diet patterns, and it was amazing. The people who were at the least risk for hypothyroidism were people following completely vegan diets. And the people at the greatest risk 
surprisingly enough, were lacto-ovo vegetarians. Um, and they're not eating any meat, but they're making up for it with cheese and yogurt and so forth. And the hypothesis has been generated that the dairy proteins in the daily diet are triggering the formation of antibodies. It's as if your body recognizes the dairy protein as an invader. It makes antibodies to it, and those antibodies are attacking the thyroid. Now, this is a theory, and it has not been tested in a randomized trial yet. But a lot of individuals are not waiting. They're going ahead and trying it on their own. And some of them do find that their thyroids get better. So don't cancel your doctor's appointment. uh, And don't throw away your medications if you're taking them. But do talk with your doctor or caregiver about the possibility of using a plant-based diet to see if it might help with hypothyroidism. And some people are doing the very same strategy for hyperthyroidism as well. And you cover a lot of this in your book, Your Body in Balance. Uh, yes, you know, thyroid diseases are so common and people feel they're, they're gaining weight, they're feeling sluggish, they can't figure out why. And the thyroid is often a big reason. It's, it's, it's a big issue and relatively simple to understand and to get back in balance. Yeah. And, and, um, I don't know if I told you this or not, but when we did the series of your body and balance shows, uh, this past January, the thyroid episodes were a couple of the most downloaded. So clearly a lot of people are wondering about this issue. So they're very grateful to be getting this information today. Um, Got time for a couple more questions here, Dr. Barnard. I want to stick with you. Interesting one from Lori. This is a medical school myth question. She says, is it true that pediatricians get more nutrition training than other physicians? Uh, You would think that they might be more interested in nutrition because um, to develop a a baby's uh, brain and, and, and overall health, you want them to eat in a particularly healthy way. But the answer to your question is, they don't get any more uh, education. Then uh, the nutrition education in medical schools has sort of been inching up in a rather begrudging way over recent years, but it is nowhere ne- where it needs to be. And that's why here at the Physicians Committee, we actually make something called the Nutrition Guide for Clinicians available to every medical student in the United States. In fact, you don't have to be a medical student. You can access it on your, your iPhone or your Android. It's a free app called the Nutrition Guide for Clinicians. And we're trying to make up for the lack of nutrition training in medical schools. All right, Dr. Loomis, uh, you were talking about gut health with the last question. Emily has a follow-up to that. She wants to know, are fermented foods necessary for good health and how often should we be eating them? So, um, yeah, I think fermented foods are an excellent way to maintain, to attain and maintain a good good, um, um, good gut health. Uh, fermented foods, and now I'm not talking about the the dill pickles that have been pasteurized that you buy off the shelf. I'm talking about uh, lacto-fermented vegetables, pickles, things like kimchi, sauerkraut, which are quite easy to make, by the way, um, at home. They're, they're, you can make them in a mason jar on your, on your counter. Now, a, cu- a couple caveats. Um, th- there is some evidence that very high intakes of, of things like kimchi, not, and I'm talking about the traditionally made kimchi, which is in a big pot that sits in the ground and, and, and the way it and, that's made in Korea. There's some evidence that, that high, um, uh, high intake of kimchi may increase risk for gastric cancer. And also some of these fermented foods have a lot of salt. So I, I think, again, it's, it's really about thinking about it as part of a healthy dietary pattern. And, and, and you know, having fermented foods once or twice a week um, is probably not going to increase your risk of, of things like, like um, 
um, uh, gastric cancer, it's probably not going to give enough salt to really make that much of a difference, especially if you just, you know, again, you, you, you have kimchi or sauerkraut or pickles one day, and then, you, you know, just really watch your salt closely the next couple of days. So it's really about looking at your overall dietary patterns. Um, and, and so I, I think they do play an important role. Probably the best thing to maintain a, a, the, the best foods you can eat for, for, to, to, to develop a healthy gut microbiome are actually things like uh, legumes. The soluble fiber in those legumes um, serves as a, what's called a prebiotic uh, to help um, um, uh, develop a, a healthy gut microbiome. And I always recommend Dr. Uh, Dr. B's book, Fiber Fueled. Uh, he's been on the, uh, the podcast, I know for sure, in the past. And uh, that's a great book that really explains about how to develop and maintain the importance of how to develop and maintain a healthy gut microbiome. That's uh, Dr. Will Bolsowitz, amazing doctor. Love having him on the show. Uh, he, he's so much fun to talk to. Uh, Dr. Loomis, final question for you. Uh, are you a dehydrated food fan? Because Lynn is asking if dehydrated foods such as tomatoes lose any nutritional value. Um, I do dehydrate some foods. Um, I haven't played around with dehydrated tomatoes. Um, I don't know of any evidence. Just, you know, theoretically, again, if you look at the difference between raw and cooked foods, and so theoretically, dehydrating tomatoes is slow cooks them, if you will, uh, at a low temperature. There is some evidence that, uh, you know, it may it may lower the vitamin C um, in the food, but it increases the lycopene. Um, uh, which is one of the powerful antioxidants, uh, polyphenols that has been shown, for example, to help maybe decrease the risk of uh, prostate cancer in men. Now, one caveat about dehydrated foods, though, um, especially fruits, um, when you dehydrate a fruit, you really concentrate that that sugar and you decrease the volume, right? So, you know, you wouldn't sit down and eat 10 apricots, you know, at a sitting, but it's very easy to sit down and eat 10 dehydrated apricots. And so the amount of sugar that you get with dehydrated foods can be quite, can be quite a lot, uh, dehydrated fruits in particular. So you don't lose fiber, you know, it's still a health food, but you just have to be careful because, because, you know, the dehydration, you know, when you dehydrate, obviously it moves water and water provides most of the bulk of the food uh, in the food. Um, it, it can be easy to overconsume dehydrated fruits in particular and overconsume calories. So you do need to be a little bit careful about that. Uh, but I, I have a dehydrator at home and I dehydrate. You know, I make banana chips and plantain chips and apple rings and pear rings and haven't done many vegetables, although that's a project I've set for myself this winter is to play around with that. So. All right. Final question, Dr. Barnard, this one comes to you. This was a question from Malu. It's been asked many times, so I'm glad that we're going to get a chance to answer it. Uh, is it true that some brands and forms of vitamin B12 are better than others? And what brand would you recommend? Okay. Um, there are two main types uh, of B12. One is cyanocobalamin. The other is methylcobalamin. The one that the body is really looking for is methylcobalamin. Um, my understanding is that the cyanocobalamin adds a teeny tiny trace of cyanide, sounds frightening, but it increases the shelf value and the amount is so trivial that it has really no physiologic effect. Um, so they both work. They both, uh, they're really equivalent. The methylcobalamin is the one that I would have to say is more physiologic, but they both are going to work fine. With regard to which actual brand you choose, I wouldn't worry so much about that. I would 
focus on the dose. Uh, the amount you actually need is 2.4 micrograms a day. And if you go off to the health food store, they've got 500 micrograms a day and a, a, a thousand and 5,000. And it's, it's amounts that you don't probably need. Uh, so pick the smallest one that you can find and take it every day. Those, those really larger doses can be used for people who have serious uh, issues, physiologic issues with regard to absorption, and they're used to make up for lost time. But uh, for, for a healthy person, get a, get a smaller one, 100 or 200 micrograms a day would be appropriate. Take it every day and you should be all right. Make an appointment to join us Monday through Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific for the Exam Room Live. That is the best place to get your questions answered and interact with other exam roomies. Everybody who tunes in every day to raise those nutrition IQs and become part of the healthiest half hour anywhere online today. You know, these Q&A shows, these diet myth shows have become some of our most popular episodes, and I would love to have the opportunity to hang out with you as well when we are doing that. But if you can't join us live, you can also tweet your questions to me at Chuck Carroll WLC or shoot me a message on Facebook. I promise you we see everything that comes in and I will save that question and do my best to get you an answer on an upcoming episode. Also, if you liked today's show, you liked what you heard, and you want to share it with the world, well, we would appreciate that. Because every time you do that, you truly help to make the world a healthier place. So if you haven't already done so, please go ahead and head over to Apple Podcast or Spotify, wherever shows are available. Hit that subscribe button when you look for the exam room by the Physicians Committee and leave a five-star rating as well. All of those five-star ratings and nice reviews, they help us climb higher in the podcast rankings. And the higher we climb, the easier it becomes for people to find this life-changing and life-saving information. So help us make the world a healthier place just by hitting that subscribe button. You know, I could not wrap up today's show without acknowledging the start of National Diabetes Awareness Month. This is a disease here that affects one out of every 10 Americans, and that includes kids. Millions and millions and millions of us have diabetes, and many, so many of those cases are preventable. We've heard so many times from the experts who have come on this show before, on the exam room, that not only are they preventable, but in a lot of these cases, they are also reversible. So throughout the month, we're going to be hearing from diabetes success stories as well. I have a sneaking suspicion you're going to hear from Mark Ramirez once again, former University of Michigan football player, big old hulking guy, played on the offensive line. We're talking taller than six feet, well over 300 pounds, stronger than an ox was able to reverse diabetes. So with that in mind, and the power of food on the mind as well, I wanted to share this story with you that crossed the exam room news desk. A so-called super pee is being eyed as a potential breakthrough for people with diabetes. 
Check this out. In a head-to-head test with what researchers called a regular smooth pea, the wrinkly variety of peas were able to ward off sugar spikes far better following mealtime. Higher levels of resistant starch found in the super peas are believed to play a major role as it takes longer for the body to break them down. And that leads to a slower, more gradual rise in blood sugar rather than a troublesome rapid spike. Researchers say the super peas used in the study are similar to the frozen peas commonly found in your local grocery store. Now, how about that? A frozen super pea. Isn't that crazy? It's your local grocery store, no less. <laughs> Nutrition science for the win. Man, I love it when those studies come across the news desk. Always so much fun getting an opportunity to check those out. And for today, that is all the time that we have, my friend. I want to say thank you again to Drs. Neil Barnard and Jim Loomis for helping us raise our nutrition IQs together, giving them a boost. Thank you, gentlemen, for your time. And on behalf of everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, stay safe, take a stand, and keep it plant-based. <laughs>